it's Christina and Al from Vic42, and we just want to thank all of our patrons, especially 2% Jazz, who've been instrumental in helping us get this project off the ground, and we are super thankful. And they're an awesome local coffee shop, awesome employer with amazing coffee, so please go and support them because they're helping make this project happen. Today we're bringing Dave Harris to you guys. And if you have ever walked around the Inner Harbor in downtown Victoria, I'm sure that you have seen him and that his music has made you smile. When we found out that he has been making his living busking for over 45 years, we needed to learn more. So let's just jump into it. I've seen him busking around town since I was little, and I find it super inspiring how much uh, you're everywhere, all the time, forever. Um, and I know how hard it is to make a living as an artist, and it just blows my mind that you are there every day doing what you do and I want to know more. Yeah, well, I haven't been uh, there every day since the pandemic. I've been and I'm all, I hit, I turned 65 this past year, so I'm starting to think about slowing down a little bit, but yeah, in my heyday, I used to work, you know, 10 hours a day sometimes playing. Uh, my hands are paying for it now, but um, yeah, I put in a lot of hours busking in the city of Victoria for sure. Well, let's talk about how you got started in all this. So first, I want to know right from the beginning, what made you decide you wanted to be a musician? I was living in Toronto with my parents. I was uh, a teenager. I was playing violin in the school music program. I had taken private lessons as well, but I wasn't serious about it. I wasn't really thinking of a career as a musician at that point. And I, at 17, I started playing guitar and it was like a light bulb moment for me and I just knew I was going to be a musician and that was all I was going to do. And I said to my dad, I'm going to be a musician and he laughed at me. He said, I don't know, because I froze at a, a piano recital when I was a, about eight or nine, just sat there and blanked right out, couldn't remember my piece. You know, we weren't allowed to have music. <laughs> and and uh, um, just totally blanked and I wasn't well prepared I have to say but I froze the looking out at the church full of parents and other students all sitting out there and it just I was like uh oh and she said oh that's okay David we'll get you back up at the end and she got me back up at the end and the same thing happened Aww. so my parents said well he's not going to be a performer but actually in grade two I came second in the class in our public speaking it was about archery, something I was really interested in at the time. So, I mean, I've had both sides. I've, I've been good at performing and I've been bad at performing. And I'm, I'm still quite a nervous person. I get stage fright every time I, I start. But it goes away after, you know, a minute or two kind of thing. And um, But even when I go busking, you know, I still get a bit nervous right when I start. Um, Doesn't that just mean you care? Maybe. Yeah, maybe it does. And I do care, and I care a lot what other people think, probably too much, which is, can be a real downfall sometimes, you know. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I started playing guitar, and I moved out here when I was 20, and I, I knew I wanted to do music full-time, but I wasn't really ready, and I didn't know how I was going to make that work, and I had UIC, back then it was called UIC, now I think it's EI, Unemployment Insurance it was called back then. And I'd worked for a year in Toronto before I moved here, and I, so I was able to collect UIC. So I used that year to sort of try and make a plan, and I went busking in the summer of 1977 and with a friend and thought, wow, this is pretty fun. You know, we didn't make a lot of money, but it was 
it was fun and it kind of wet my appetite. And so the fall, this, the winter of 77, when my UIC ran out, I, I started busking full time. I would go down and play in front of the Eaton's, it was the Eaton's building back in those days, long before they built the Bay Center. And I'd play there on Government Street every day from maybe 10.30 in the morning until 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the afternoon. Um, I'd take a break in, in the middle somewhere and go have something to eat. But uh, a good day was like $15, you know. Wow. But my room, I don't know that I was renting, only cost $70 a month. So I was able to live fairly fairly easily, really. It didn't seem that hard. I mean, I couldn't buy guitars and things like that, which mm -hmm. I got into later. Um, and I was playing kind of Neil Young and some fiddle tunes. I started getting the fiddle back into the show because I realized that I liked playing fiddle tunes. I didn't like playing classical music. I grew up with classical music. We didn't have a television in the house when I was a kid and my, my parents loved classical music and it was on the stereo a lot. And you know when you hear how glorious it is when it's done right, it's pretty daunting when you pick up your fiddle and go scratch, 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 <laughs> and and you know it doesn't sound right. And so I didn't get inspired by that. And but when I started playing fiddle music, you know Irish fiddle tunes and American fiddle tunes, it was uh, like okay, it doesn't matter if it's a little scratchy. It actually kind of adds something to the character. And um, so I did a lot of that. One day I was playing my fiddle on Douglas Street in front of the Eaton's building, and uh, it was near Christmas time, and an elderly lady came by and she dropped a $5 bill in my case, and a $5 bill at that time was a big tip. Well, like, this is before the loonies and the toonies and stuff, you know, it was, a, um, it was a big tip. So I said, thank you, and I'm sawing away on my fiddle, and she walks over to the entrance of the building, and I can see her out of the corner of my eye, and she's standing there watching me, and then she comes running back, and she turns her change purse over and dumped it into my case. And this big roll of bills with an elastic around it fell in my case, and, I, and I'm going, thank you, thank you, and I, I'm sawing away on my fiddle, and I couldn't stop. I was so awestruck, I guess, or whatever, kind of in shock, and I just kept playing and playing, and, and finally I said, okay, well, I've got to pick that up. I've got to take it out of the case. I can't leave that. Someone might come and grab it, you know? And it was brown on the outside, and I'd never seen a $100 bill before. It was $562. Wow. The next day, I went to Vancouver and bought myself a better violin. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So that was my biggest tip ever. Wow. So did, I, you, did you start busking on guitar? or I, was, I started on guitar. I had harmonica in the rack, and I, and I played guitar. And yeah. like, like I say, Neil Young kind of music and some country rock and yeah. a bit of blues. But... I was still getting into the blues. I've, I've, I've always been an avid record, record collector and I had about 350 albums when I moved here from Toronto. Um, and they were mostly rock and some fusion and um, you know, some folky stuff and a bit of blues, but I really latched onto the blues here in Victoria. I discovered Jimmy Reed and Jimmy Reed was like, that's, I can do that. It was harmonica and guitar, you know, and it was just what I was doing. And I, I figured out how to play the Jimmy Reed style harmonica, which is different than a lot of sort of the amplified harmonica styles you hear. And anyway, I just, uh, yeah, I went with, I went kind of from the Neil Young into the blues gradually. And, 
And, but in, the, in there was also bluegrass and, and fiddle, team, fiddle music, and I played with some Irish Celtic musicians, and I played with some bluegrass players, and people started coming and guesting with, or sitting in with me on the busking on the street. They'd just come down and show up, and we'd all play. Played with a fabulous banjo player by the name of Ian McIntyre. He's over on the mainland now, but absolutely fabulous banjo, five-string banjo player. And so, yeah, I guess I kind of went in a whole bunch of different directions, really, you know. I played a bit of in electric guitar in a country rock band. And, you know, just... That's by, awesome. the, by the 80s, I started a band called Blue Sky, which didn't last that long. I, it seemed like a long time. I went through a lot of membership. lasted about seven or eight years um, here in Victoria. We played a lot of dances. We played at the Fernwood Community Center a lot, and little some gigs, some gigs around the island, and a couple of festivals and things like that. But we never really made it very far. You know, we were we started writing our own songs, and and we had kind of class, classic rock kind of a flavor. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, Nothing's ever really quite taken off for me, and you know, I've I've always uh, kind of just sort of gone along under the radar, kind of. You know, a lot of people know me, obviously, from the busking. Um, but yeah, it's a, I don't know. So when did the when did the one man band thing show up? Because you went like guitar, guitar, harmonica, into and fiddling, and when did you start to move? Like, explain the journey from musically from then till now. Like, how did it evolve for you? Mm -hmm. You were talking earlier mm -hmm. about like pedals and things. Mm -hmm. Our gear evolving. Yeah. Well, the one man band thing um, kind of stemmed. We went on a road trip and we were wanting to practice in the hotel room. This was around 1990, I guess. Yeah, 91, 90, 91, somewhere in there. And we, we went on a road trip and we were out in the prairies and playing in country. We were basically a country band. We weren't really a country band, but we learned the appropriate material. And, and I'd played a lot of country and so had a couple of the other guys, so it was, wasn't a stretch. But uh, we'd always try and slip blues tunes in there and the management would come over and go, you can't play that in your ear. <laughs> do Caledonia or something like that. It was like, nope, 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 you can't do that in here. We thought, well, it's pretty close. No, not close <laughs> enough to Garth Brooks and, and whatever was on the radio at the time, you know. Um, but uh, in the hotel room, we wanted to practice. We were trying to, the drummer in particular had, you know, not played a lot of country and he wasn't too sure of some of the beats and stuff. So we were trying to rehearse him. And uh, we didn't want to set up a whole drum kit in the hotel room. So we had a suitcase. And we got the idea of, well, put the suitcase up against the couch and just put the bass pedal on that and then use the hi-hat and the snare. And, you know, you've got a basic little practice kit, right? And I thought, hey, what a great idea, the suitcase, you know? And so when I came back to town, I thought, you know, I probably could... I was busking by myself a lot of the time anyway. I thought, well, I could probably add drums to my, my, my setup. So I... I sat down finally. I'd been stand. I'd been a stand-up busker all the years until then. So I sat down and I got a suitcase and I got a hi hat. I had the hi hat was I got from Charles Gates, a fabulous drummer here in town, and he it was it was a fold-up hi hat. So the the stand would fold up, so I could put it in the suitcase. So everything was self-contained in one suitcase. My seat, I could you know fold up the seat and it all went in the suitcase. It was heavy, but it it, it all fit. 
And so I had a hi-hat and a wood block and a suitcase and, um, and I'm doing, you know, the suitcase with one foot and the hi-hat with the other. And uh, sometimes I'd pick up the fiddle. I started bringing the fiddle and I'd play fiddle and harmonica and drums. And maybe while I'd sing, I'd bang on the, the wood block, you know, and things like that. And that was about 95, maybe I started doing that. Um, Actually, before that, I played in a duo with a, another friend of mine, Mike Nitsche. We had been on the road playing with Ken McCoy. And he, he played the hi-hat, and I had a snare drum and a bass drum, and actual drums. But we were using amps in those days. In 94, they outlawed amps on the streets of Victoria. But up until that time, we were using little battery amps. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I guess in the early 90s, I started doing the one-man band, but it was a two-person two act. And then the one man by myself, Mike, moved to Vancouver to work with Ken McCoy. Ken moved to Vancouver. And uh, I started doing the, the by myself, the one man band, and then got the fiddle back in there. That's one of my big innovations, I feel, as a musician, is playing fiddle and harmonica together. I've never seen anybody else do it. I, I know I'm not the only person in the world that does it, but it's not common at all. And you um, kind of have to, like... Oh, oh yeah, you can't, you, yeah, the, you can't put the fiddle <laughs> under your chin. You got to hold it. You know, I had a friend that did that, and I thought, okay, well, I could try that. And so I started trying to do it, and it was, it was harder than it sounds, actually. But I've played so much harmonica that it's kind of muscle memory. Like I can, you know, I know my way around the harmonica pretty well, um, and I've played, you know, straight harp and cross harp. So I, I'm. I know the instrument quite well, and so combining it with the fiddle, it was more hard trying to figure out where the fiddle notes that went with the harmonica rather than the other way around. Um, and I do the same thing with guitar, too. I play guitar and harmonica together a lot. Um, so those are kind of things I feel are a little different than most players that I've seen. So did it evolved to be a one-man band just by wanting to add different elements to the busking that you were doing or did you have a fascination with one-man bands before it um, there? a little bit of both I mean I was familiar with there was a local guy named one-man band Dan from Galliano Island that would come here when I first started busking he had been already around for a few years and he'd come and he'd set up by the Captain Cook statue no more Capricorn statue. Anyway, that's another story. Um, he'd set up there, and he had a big enclosure, and he'd sit in this enclosure, and he, I, I guess it was kind of, he'd just wheel it off of the back of his van, and it kind of was self-contained, and he'd sit in there. It was mostly kind of a kid's show. He played accordion and, and uh, drums with his feet, and he had all kinds of horns and things that he could squeeze and, and make noises, and the kids loved him. It was, it was kind of a kid's show. Um, but it was neat to see, and it kind of triggered my imagination a bit. And then I was familiar with Jesse Fuller. Jesse Fuller was a one-man band that wrote the San Francisco Bay Blues. That was his big song. It was quite big in the 60s. A lot of bands covered it. Um, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and I, I don't know, a whole bunch of people covered it. Anyway, uh, I was familiar with him, and he had a foot-operated bass that he had made himself. You can't buy one. Um, <laughs> It was just like a, a big, kind of almost looked like a stand-up bass, but it had a bunch of strings on it, not more than more than four. And uh, he had foot, 
foot pedals that he'd operate it with. It was a, Crazy. An acoustic. It was an acoustic instrument, and then piano hammers would hit the strings. So I, uh, in I guess around 2000, I had a friend. Of, I'm not very good at being a builder, but I had found a friend that was really interested in the idea, and he built me one, and I used that for, oh, maybe 10, 12 years, something like that. It, 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 it was funky, and it kind of broke down a lot, and it was a little bit frustrating, and I, it wasn't real loud. It was loud enough that you could hear it, but it wasn't as loud as I would have liked. I was playing a steel body guitar, which is quite a loud instrument, singing myself hoarse, trying to stay over it. Um, but the bass was fun. I really enjoyed it, and it was really challenging trying to play bass notes, especially if you're trying to play fiddle and change notes with your feet. You know, you're moving your feet back and forth trying to get these different notes. And uh, uh, I gave up on it after a while. I felt like people weren't really noticing it. It wasn't even grabbing the attention that I was hoping it would. I, I, I got pretty big crowds for a while on the causeway in the in the late 90s and early 2000s. They, they, Bravo Television had a documentary about me. Um, I, I, that was probably the peak of my career in some ways. hate to say that, but probably was. Um, and uh, anyway, there, at the height of my one-man band show, I had the, the Fotdella. That's what Jesse Fuller called it, Fotdella, foot-operated foot bass. I think the thought was foot, and the Della was from Killer Diller, which was like something <laughs> cool. Anyway, uh, so I, I had that, and I had my, my foot drums, because some songs I didn't use the bass. And then I had uh, um, two fiddles in different tunings, a viola, a mandolin, uh, a banjo, uh, at least two guitars, sometimes three. I mean, it was a, it, it filled the back of our station wagon. It was like a station wagon load, like there was room for the two of us in the front. My, my ex-wife would drive us, drive me to work all the time. I don't drive, I'm, I ride a bicycle. <laughs> Couldn't haul all that on a bicycle. <laughs> um, hence, that's why I've scaled it back to now I'm riding a bicycle and hauling a, a, a cart, you know, and I've got, it's enough to carry a couple of instruments and a, and a suitcase and hi-hat, but not much more. You said you started in 77? Yeah. Yeah, I was like five. And right. I remember I remember you from when I was really young, okay. just seeing you downtown uh -huh. and stuff like that. But yeah, and you don't really think about it much. Like, you know, it just, it was, it's interesting. I think what's interesting to me is like, you've, you've stuck with it. Like you, you chose a lane and you've been driving it hard. <laughs> yeah, well, some of it was out of necessity because I didn't want to go out and get another job and really I have no real other skills. I mean, I didn't go to university, I didn't get a degree of any sort and, and uh, you know, didn't really take any training courses and learn how to do other things. And I mean, I have learned how to do other things, yeah. obviously, but they've mostly been music related like I did my own recording studio for a while and I record people. But I mean, you know, I have to have lots of revenue streams to make a living as a musician. And so my main one was busking, you know, and uh, so it was a kind of a necessity. I, I loved it it's, and I still do, but you know, um, it was also necessary, you know. It's, which is interesting because a lot of musicians that I've talked to over the years, they have jobs and they're doing music until music gets to a certain point and then that's like the plan, right? Right. And so you just replaced working at Starbucks with busking, Yeah. basically. Yeah. And so you were a musician who 
loved music and wanted to be a musician and wanted to do music and you used busking as a way to keep you in that without having to go get another job. Exactly. And that's still the case today, you know, and, um, uh, you know, I've, I mean, they're just, I'm sure everyone here is aware that there's no work for musicians these days. It's like there's almost nothing, like clubs are going folding and becoming yeah. other things and not having live music and... Yeah, I mean, in the 90s, I was working three nights a week at Swan's Hotel every week. I had three nights a week. I played uh, with Al Peace and Clark Brendan and Charles Gates in Barrel House every Monday night. And then Wednesday night, I was there with the Chance Brothers, which was kind of a bluegrass band. Not kind of, it was a bluegrass band. And then Sunday night, I played there with Little Marty playing straight up, you know, Chicago blues. And... Uh, there, and there was seven nights a week music. Now there's zero nights a week at Swans, you know, and, and that, and Steamers folded up, uh, you know, Herman's is still going, but they're struggling. Uh, Logan's closed. I mean, the, the music scene here has just gone yeah. down the tubes. Yeah. I don't think it's just here either. I think it's probably a lot of places. People are so connected to their phones and, um, you know, technology, and there's so much available online, and there's so many ways of, enjoying entertainment yeah. at home you don't have to go out and drinking driving laws have also made it worse when i mean i'm not advocating for drunk driving <laughs> but, but you know it has kept people indoors yeah. and, and of course it's expensive mm. expensive to go out too yeah when we play at the loft i play at the loft every tuesday and when we play at the loft you know we're playing for donations when we first started we weren't getting any money from the house Wow. We were playing strictly for donations. And at first, it was actually pretty good. People were generous. They appreciated that there was somewhere where they could go to see live music because the pandemic was on. This is, this is starting, uh, I guess, uh, I'm thinking June 2009, not 2019, I guess, was when I started in there. And, uh, or maybe it was 2020. Anyway, I don't know. Um, we're in 2022, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it was 2020. Yeah. Yeah, the pandemic didn't start till 2020, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't know. I've lost. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've lost. There's two years of my life that <laughs> are a blank. Together, that's it. <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, I feel lucky to even have a gig, really, to be honest, because there's so few available. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so busking has become almost more important for me now, with even less of work available. You know, and yeah. through the 2000s and 2010s, I I was putting in up to 10 hours a day busking on the on the causeway wow. not not every day but through the summer months and you know six was normal eight was regular and 10 was exceptional but yeah. it did, did happen you know of course it also hinged on other people not being there because there was about 30 of us in the group that played on the harbor right. And a lot of times people didn't show up. Mm -hmm. I'm one of the only people that's actually dedicated to busking. Yeah. And the late plaster man, he was dedicated. He oh, would yeah. be there a lot too. Mm -hmm. But uh, most of the people would just come some of the time. So they, we'd all have a scheduled media meeting every week and we'd book our spots. And um, I was the senior person because I'd been busking the longest. So we had a seniority order. So I'd get to pick first. And some, some people resented that. They thought it should just be a rotation. Well, there was just, we just couldn't figure out a way to do it. So we went with the seniority and basically it worked. And, you know, but a lot of the people would pick spots and then they wouldn't show up. Sometimes they'd tell me, hey, I'm not going to show up. You can grab my spot today or something like that, you know. Um, but I somehow managed to, you know, 
work a lot, and I, I, I'm paying for it. I've got problems with this hand. My fingers fold in on me now. They don't, they don't want to stay out. They just naturally want to go like that all the time. Mm. Um, it's a little disconcerting. I'm trying to adapt. I'm learning, learning to play through it. Um, it. It's an interesting city to, to be busking in, too, because our weather isn't perfect. All It's not like being in California. No, but it's better than anywhere else in Canada. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's for yeah. sure. Uh, the weather's pretty good. I mean, yeah, this past winter's been been colder than usual. I haven't been out nearly as much. The last couple of years, I've played right through the winter pretty much. Wow, you know, not every day, but weekends and, you know, maybe four or five days a week kind of thing. Yeah. Um, my wife and I split up a couple of years or th maybe four years ago, and so that changed my life a lot. I've yeah. kept doing a lot, taking care of myself, getting around on a bike, and uh, trying to help support her still. We're, we're very close still. We're good friends. Nice. Um, and I can imagine, like right now, it, we've talked to musicians, and it's not an easy go, just period. You're not joking when you say it's been tough on it, even like uh, I have a friend who's a magician it's been hard like anyone who's in that kind of forward-facing entertainment business life has just been non-existent for two years almost yeah. so how, how what do you what do you how are you how did you survive like what what did what did you do how did it well you know I went busking a lot during the pandemic and people were surprisingly much more generous Oh, nice. Local people stepped up and nice. been very supportive. I never got so many $20 bills as I've gotten since the pandemic and $10 bills. And, you know, before a $5 bill was kind of a large tip. Yeah. And people would throw you a toonie or, or a loony or whatever. But uh, people have really stepped up. I got to hand it to the citizens of Victoria. They've been absolutely wonderful and super supportive and same same faces, not always the same faces, obviously, but a lot of the same faces and st stepping up repeatedly over and over and over. And I'm kind of just waiting for the bottom to fall out of that, you know, because, <laughs> um, you know, people can't put in five dollars every time they see you, yeah. you know, especially if they're working downtown or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been it's it's been OK. It's been it's been workable. I've been I haven't been going sinking down and, and being broke, you know, yeah, I've been yeah. managing to make it work. And a, a big shout out to places like The Loft for keeping live entertainment indoors as well. You know, there's a couple of other rooms that are stewing it, the Barden Banker, and I think Darcy's might have started up again now, and, and uh, uh, Irish Times. But I mean, uh, Chris, oh, uh, Ross Bay Pub has mm -hmm. entertainment on Thursday night. I do that one occasionally. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's shortage of rooms shortage of places to play and yeah. and i mean a lot of people are still scared to go out and i understand the i understand that yeah um but i feel like now that i'm triple vaxxed i mean if i get it it's going to be mild and i sometimes wonder if i ha have had it because i had a bit of a cold a few weeks ago was that COVID? it might have been yeah. yeah you don't know anymore and so what, what was it about so this whole time you're it's all been about music for you like really yeah, my so, wife used to say that, you know, it's just music, music, music. He never stopped. He's always music, music, music. I want to go do something nice. And he, no, 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 it's music, music, music. So, and it's true. I mean, I, I have about 12,000 LPs. I've just collected records my whole life. And I, um, uh, you know, if it's not playing music, it's listening to music, you know. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know what it is. It's just a passion. I mean, you you understand, I'm sure. You know, it's if if you, you just it just takes hold of you, and I don't know. So, how do you explain that to somebody who it doesn't? Like, how do you explain the grass well? That maybe they have? have a passion for something else. I mean, we all have passions. Um, some people are more passionate than others, I guess. And I, I'm a pretty passionate person, and I wear my heart on my sleeve, and it gets me in trouble sometimes. But uh, you know, it's yeah. I, I don't know if I can really explain what it is, but I mean, I just had this eureka light bulb moment when I was a teenager, and I knew that was what I was going to do and I, and I just set out to do it and my dad was proud of me after he saw that I was really serious about it you know That's I great. told you he laughed at first but you know my parents were proud of me so that 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 was nice and they didn't you know think oh you're you know a lowly busker because a lot of people do that's mm. one of the things about busking that's difficult lots of people are supportive lots of people like it but there's a quite a large segment of the population that thinks oh you know you're just a beggar you're basically mm. just asking for a handout yeah. you're not they don't recognize that you're giving something back in exchange you know that it's an exchange of energy right their energy is in the form of cash or appreciation and my energy is in the form of the music you know Earlier, you said I had 350 LPs. <laughs> yeah, when, when I moved you, to when you moved to Victoria, and just a second ago, you said you have 12,000 LPs. It kind of became a bit of a mania. <laughs> so you you're clearly passionate about stuff. Music has just grabbed hold of you. You're passionate about it. It sounds like you're you're passionate about music, but you also are passionate about busking. Like you know a lot. You've like you spent a long time doing it. You have yeah, 45 years this year. Right? That's like awesome. But you also seem to have had this passion about collecting LPs because that's a substantial record collection. I know. Uh, you know, when we'd go out on tour, I, I went out on a few tours, mostly in country bands. Um, we, we did a couple in the blues band, but never had enough work to really make it work. Um, but anyway, go out and, and be out on the prairies. So, you know, Saskatoon and Regina and... Uh, Calgary, Edmonton, you know, uh, Medicine Hat, all the different places. And there'd always be a, a record store. And I would go in the record store and I would go through the whole record store and I would find every single record that I, especially blues, that I, that I didn't have. And I'd just take him up to the front and he'd say, okay, we'll give you a deal. You, but, you know, you got to stack that high. We'll give you a deal. Uh, how about, you know, $400 or something like that? I'd say, yep. And there goes that week's pay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And I came back with no money and, and you know, that much record, sorry, whoops, don't do that. That's what we weren't supposed to be doing. Uh, but, you know, like, like, you know, two feet of vinyl, right? And uh, my wife was fine with it. She, she understood. And, you know, we weren't broke. We'd, and I'd go right back to work and I'd be busking again as soon as I got home kind of thing. And... Uh, uh, just over the years, and I did a lot of mail order. I used to order from catalogs. I do order from from a couple of places in England, and even in Australia, and all over the U.S. And um, I've got about between four and five thousand blues LPs. That was my real focus was the blues. But then you know, I'd buy collections from people too, and they'd mostly be rock or most a lot of country or that kind of thing. So I've got large, a very large rock collection as well, probably three or four thousand as well or something, and you know, probably a thousand country albums and 
you know, I don't know. Anyway, it just all adds up and yeah. a lot of other stuff too, Celtic records and jazz and... Um, Do you have a favorite? A favorite one record? Favorite one record just or favorite talking. one find. Ooh, boy, that's a hard one. I know. Uh, my wife was working as a house cleaner and uh, one of her clients gave her a, a box of records and she brought it home. And it was mostly, you know, kind of 50s, um, schmaltzy, pop kind of stuff. And But in there was one record. It was a Lonnie Johnson and, and Jim McCarg's Jug Stompers. It's a very rare record. I'm a, I love Lonnie Johnson. Lonnie Johnson was like one of the most important guitar players of all time. He was one of the first to introduce a single string playing playing single notes. Django Reinhardt was influenced by Lonnie Johnson, so if that says anything. Anyway, and this record was in there, and it was one. There was only 500 copies of it printed, and uh, it's kind of a Dixieland record with some blue, bluesy Dixieland, and uh, Canadian band actually. It was recorded in Toronto just before Lonnie died, and. Uh, that that was like a find. That was a real find for me. That was like, wow, this box of, sorry to say, dross. <laughs> and there's this one gem in there, you know. There might have been a couple of other good jazz LPs, but it was mostly, you know, schmaltzy, easy listening pop, you know. There was yeah. a lot of that in the 50s and early 60s. And these folks were from that era, kind of, they're a bit older than me. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I found a few gems along the way for sure. I got a, the best of Muddy Waters from a, a fellow collector in James Bay. Nice. Um, yeah, original chess records. Anyway. And so do you have like just a room for your records? Right <laughs> now home? I've got records where I live and records at my ex-wife's house. It's too much to put them all where I live. <laughs> so she's allowed me to keep a room there and I've got some of my guitar collection and, and some of the LP collection there. I've got the blues where I live and some of the other, a bit of other stuff. But That sounds like a song title. I've got the blues where I live. Just, <laughs> that just sounds and like a song. And some other stuff. And, and some, yeah, right? That just, that just screams, write a song about that. Speaking of songs, what's your favorite song you ever wrote? Hmm. I wrote a song in 1998, or actually end of 97, called Give Them Their Flowers. I'm sure it's my most famous song. Having said that, it's not famous, but other people have recorded it. Louise Rose recorded it, um, and it was a very heartfelt song that just kind of poured out of me in about 15 minutes. Uh, of, I was working on a CBC um, radio play, a fellow local fellow named Charles Tidler had written this radio play, and he, came to, he used to come to Swans all the time and see us performing as Barrel House, and he really loved the band, so he said, would we like to be, do the music for this radio play? And I, we, we said, sure, and he, it was, the, the producer was in Vancouver, so I had to do the recording myself. So he was giving me specifications about what they needed, and they need little stings, they call them little, just a little five seconds of this, or five seconds of that. And um, So I did all this recording, and I talked back and forth with the producer on the phone quite a bit, and really liked him, he was a really likable guy, Don Kowalchuk. And after we had finished the, the play and it came out, I heard that he had um, resigned from his job and then shortly after that he died. 
And I felt really bad, it really hit me, you know, that I never really expressed to him how much I enjoyed working with him and stuff. And so I wrote this song, Give Them Their Flowers, while they're still here, you know, it's kind of a, I don't know, we put flowers on someone's grave when they die, give them their flowers while they're still alive. It's, I'm not, it's not an original idea, other people have written songs <laughs> along the same line. But it, it, uh, it kind of gave me a little bit of a leg up. CBC really liked it, the song too. Uh, David Grierson, he, he also passed, uh, promoted, promoted it. He had me over to Vancouver and did an interview with me over there and promoted that song a bit because he knew the backstory and he really liked the song. Um, yeah, so I, that, that's probably my favorite song in some ways just because of that. It's not necessarily my best song, but it's probably my favorite. I've written quite a lot of songs. I, not recently, and I've had a dry spell for a while. It sort of ebbs and flows, but I, I, I was writing, a, I was doing an album every year, a CD every year when I'm, you know, CD sales on the causeway when I was busking was a big part of my income. So having a new CD was kind of something that was kind of important and so in the off season when I wasn't busking so much because in those days I would mostly just busk like April to end of October kind of thing and then I'd just knock off for the winter okay. um, and uh, so I would try and write a, a new album and I would you know write a bunch of songs pick maybe a few covers that resonated and and put make make a CD you know and and sell it on the causeway and so yeah, I've written maybe 150 songs or something like that over the years. Nice. nice. Uh, not all of them are good. <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? Yeah, it is. Not every it video is good. Not every yeah. photo is good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how? What you've been doing this for a while? The one thing I love to talk to about people with a lot of experience is what? It, what has been the biggest change in, that you've seen in what you've done over those years? Like. Um, you know, like for me, different. There's changes in photography. There's changes in the way people do things. What's the biggest change you've seen? And it could be anything for like from the the music scene, the busking scene, just the people scene. Like what what is the biggest change you've seen throughout the years? Boy, there's been a few. I mean, one I mentioned a little bit earlier was uh, the fact that everybody's got their phone in their hands, and it's hard to get people to focus on on something actually happening, it's harder anyway. Um, people are kind of self-absorbed with their phones and, and, and so I find that, I've noticed that change a lot. Like it used to be that people would sit down, come, there's steps on the lower causeway, and people would come and sit down on the steps and they'd maybe not rapt attention, but they'd be paying attention, you know, and I'd be performing and talking in between the songs and putting on a show. And uh, I've watched that change. So now they sit down on the steps and they grab their phone. And they might film you, but they're not really present in the same way. Um, and so, and they'll still tip when they leave and stuff. It's not, and, but you know, it, it's, it's, there's a more demeaning element to it than there used to be. Um, and I stopped talking because of it. It was like, I stopped talking between songs. It was like, well, what's the point? Nobody's paying any attention, you know? Where I used to just go, okay, if I talk, people are going to stop because they want to know what you're talking about. And somewhere in there, things changed for me so that I, I lost that drive to try and grab people's attention. I guess maybe I just felt like I couldn't. I don't know. 
Yeah. If it was like this when you started, would you have kept going? Hard to say. I mean, you know, you have to keep in mind that it was a necessity too. Mm -hmm. Like I had to make a living somehow. I didn't want to collect welfare. I mean, that was my other option. Um, I did try working a couple of little jobs here for, you know, a few days kind of thing. I hauled drywall and thought, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to play if I do this. You know, it's too, you know, ruin my hands. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was out of necessity. So maybe I would, I don't recommend people going into a career in music anymore. I, I hate to say that, that seems so negative, but I just don't recommend it. Have a backup plan, you know? If you're a young person that's driven to do music, have a backup plan. I didn't have a backup plan and I'm lucky I came along when I came. If I came along now, it'd be a lot harder, I would say. So what would be your piece of advice on busking? Like, because I know a lot of, I, I know some younger musicians who are trying it, right? Mm -hmm. So what would you tell that person who's trying to go the same path as you? Like, I want to be a musician, I need to earn money, so I'll busk and I'll be on the street. And I, I've seen some I actually there. wrote a, a piece about that, of the do's and don'ts of busking and, and street etiquette and stuff like that. And I could send it to you guys if you want. But, uh, um, I mean, A, location. So find a spot that's good. There's got to be high traffic, hopefully some seating, not too loud um, background, like the background not too loud, like so maybe not a Douglas and Yates or something like that, you know? I mean, unless you're a saxophone player, Sean, Sean Winter, the late Sean it's Winter amazing. used to play there all the time. Um, so it can work, but you've got to be allowed. And if you're singing, it's probably not the right spot. Mm -hmm. um, so location is one, uh, respect for the other buskers. Don't just wander in if you're new and expect to have the best spot whenever you want and, and you know, be the loudest and set up between two other buskers. And I mean, some of it's just common courtesy and, and, and obvious to me, but you'd be surprised how people sometimes think, oh, well, I'll just set up across the street. Well, wait a minute, what do you mean you'll just set up across the street? There's always been, as long as I've been in Victoria and been busking, there's always been sort of established spots and distances. And so Bastion Square is, is a standard spot. Then down by Murchies is, is the next one. And even that's a bit close if the two acts are loud. Some people are using amps on the streets. They're not supposed to as far as I know, but they are. Uh, I saw a drummer playing drums with karaoke. I mean, I don't, it wasn't karaoke, but backing tracks or whatever playing drums at the top of the causeway, full bore. I thought, oh my God, if he's there in the summer, I'm not gonna wanna play down below, you know? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, be respectful of the public, say thank you. Um, don't leave a mess behind you. You know, try and treat the, the, uh, the idea of busking with respect, like not, don't just go down there and swear at people and leave your cigarette butts and, coffee cups and you know I mean I don't know a lot of it's just common sense but yeah. you'd be surprised sometimes and that's what gives busking a bad name one of the things that yeah. gives busking a bad name so you wrote something about that now you also wrote a book so tell us how did that happen because that's like music and books I guess it's writing it's art still but like how did you go from that into deciding to do a book yeah yeah that's a good question uh my mom always said I'd be a writer. She was surprised when I went into music instead of writing. She thought I'd be a writer because I loved creative writing when I was 
in my teens. Um, but uh, uh, I guess I got, believe it or not, I didn't get on the internet. I, I was on the internet briefly with a, one of those AOL um, <laughs> subscriptions. AOL Online. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff. Briefly in the, in the, I guess it would be the 90s. Yeah, the 90s, I guess. And, but then I, I finally got on the internet properly and full-time in 2009. And I started looking around to see what was out there about one-man bands. And I, I, it was a subject I was already fascinated with, and I was familiar with a fair number of blues one-man bands. And uh, so I started looking around, and there wasn't really anything much written. There had been a magazine about it in the, in the 90s that I had and I was in. Um, but not really any, nobody had really sort of tried to bring the whole thing together into a, a book or anything like that. And I started discovering that there was a lot of one-man bands out there. And I thought, okay, this is a subject that's worth writing about. And I felt passionate about it. And so I started writing and I would busk all day and I'd come home and I'd do research at night. And then in the winter months, I, I wrote it. And uh, it took me three years. And after I finished, I discovered there's way more one-man bands. And since I wrote it, there's been even more. There's, I probably could have written a second book. I'm, well, not, be... I'm not going to. <laughs> I was going to say, will there be a second book? <laughs> no, there is part no. Part one didn't sell well enough. It just didn't. It was, I'm not good at marketing. I mean, you know, I, I've, I'm not good at knocking on doors and saying, you know, do you, you know, can you give me a gig or, or you want to buy my book or I'm just not good at that kind of stuff. And uh, so I self-published the book and there are still 500 or something copies in, in the garage at my wife's house or ex-wife's house. So, yeah, uh, I, you know, every so often I'll do a little promo and I'll sell another 20 copies or something. But yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm selling it for $20 now. I started out at 50. And, and I'm selling it for a loss. I've got $25 into each book, but it's just 20, a $20 bill is something people are willing to part with. 25, it's like, nope, now it's two bills. Yeah. I mean, okay, with e-transfers and stuff, maybe it doesn't matter as much, but it just seems like $20 is a magic number. Um, and so I just want to move them. I don't want them to end up in the landfill. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'll give well, you guys one. I was like, yeah, well, jack, will, jack the price so when would, this goes out, maybe like you can to, sell a few books. I would like to purchase one. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I have a couple of people that should definitely have one. We should I tried putting them in the book boxes around town too for a while. And oh, I, put a little, I put a little thing in the front saying, if you want to donate, you know, you could kind of thing. Gave them the option of e-transfer yeah, or yeah. PayPal. And that worked a little bit. You know, I mean, a lot of them went away for free, but that's okay. It's better that they go into somebody's house than into the landfill, you know. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. I was just going to say that it takes a lot of heart and energy to do what you've done for so many years. And I wonder if you have any advice for how to keep going when things get tough. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I have, you know, things have gotten tough at times and I have kept going. How to, how to tell somebody else to do that. You just got to dig deep in your, in yourself. And I guess you, if you just got to have enough belief that, that what you're doing is the right thing for you. And uh, I, yeah, you just got to kind of dig deep into yourself. And I mean, yeah, I, I, that's a tough question to answer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 
That's true. And what, one thing I always love to ask everyone, and I've been doing this since Vic42 began, I've asked everyone the same question. Like basically, imagine for a second the entire world is listening to you. Outside of your music, outside of everything, just you as a human being. If everyone in the world was listening to you and would actually hear what you were about to say, what is the one message you would want to give to the world? Gulp. No pressure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. Follow your passion. I don't know. Do, do what, what makes you happy. Happiness is worth more than money. It doesn't have to be about money always, you know. Of course we all need money to live, but happiness is more important. Come to at... the loft. Yeah, <laughs> Come for sure. to the loft. We're on Tuesday, Tuesday night, 6 to 9, every week. Yeah. Playing blues and swing. Something that the world is missing a lot right now. Like you talk to anyone and you, you, you forget the impact that entertainment and arts has on society. I think yeah. that's partly why the busking's been better in this last while. People are having a different appreciation of, of the fact that, wow, there was actually some live music happening somewhere. Yeah. I we played, we, when we first tried, I busked with a young, young fellow. He's the son I never had, Peter Jans. And uh, we tried the Johnson Street Bridge, if you can imagine. At the, in, sort of early in the pandemic, it was like, well, there's nobody downtown. There's no point going downtown. We've got to go where people are walking. So we went over on the other side of the Johnson Street Bridge and tried it there. wasn't very good, but there was at least some people walking. <laughs> yeah, and Cook Street Village, we've tried that. Yeah, just, just finding good locations has been challenging, but downtown's happening again now. Yeah. That's good. Well, and I think, too, like, music is emotional. And like what everyone's going through and what we've been through is emotional, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that there's, I, I really hope that all of this comes back with a vengeance. I think, I hope that this time of not having entertainment and not having like live music and live stuff, I really hope that it, it's just fueled a thirst for it. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, and I hope well, people realize too how much everyone had to struggle through this. Like you didn't have as many gigs. So when people come back, I hope they don't just, show up and have a drink and leave, that they remember that they need to support the venue and they need to support the musicians and tip and buy drinks mm -hmm, and yeah. eat something mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. bring friends because mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. been tough for everybody mm -hmm. and we lost so many places that mm -hmm. the only way that people will be able to keep going is if people spend some money and support it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true, uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Well, we said that in stereo. I know. What <laughs> it's like we hang out a lot. Or, no, 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 don't. I thought don't you were done. Wreck my coffee. <laughs> awesome. awesome. So now we'll have to.